listening to The Rights Pod, a podcast by the Center for Human Rights and International Justice at Stanford University. If you're interested in human rights, then you're listening to The Rights Pod. I'm Alina Utrada, and this is The Rights Pod. For this week's episode, one of our human rights students, Nuza Tarzu, explores the issue of women's rights in Mauritius. Nuza was born and grew up in Mauritius, and she spoke with other Mauritius women and academics about their experience and expertise with gender discrimination, and why, after all this time, does gender inequality in Mauritius still persist? If you're interested in human rights, then you're listening to The Rights Pod. Women, girls, female identifying people represent about half of the world's population. But it's not just any half. It's a half that have been historically trumped upon and which still continues to be crushed and discriminated against all across the world in different forms. Until 1918, women could still not vote in Britain, and the last country to give women the right to vote was Saudi Arabia in 2015, just five years ago. Most countries have come a long way since they gave women the right to vote. Gender equality has even been recognized as a fundamental human right by the United Nations and is on the books in most countries of the world. But, do laws always guarantee justice? Are they always indicative of what is truly going on in a country? Do laws necessarily influence how the society views crucial aspects of its daily lives? How about culture, religion, traditions, and gender norms and biases that still continue to persist over generations? I was born in Mauritius, which is a country with very progressive gender equality laws, but I did witness a lot of discrimination injustice, and even violence being perpetrated against women growing up there. And I also noticed that there was a stark difference in the way that I was being brought up as a girl and the way my friends from other cultures, or even my own culture sometimes, were being brought up. There were two extremes. An extreme end where the woman's value and importance were exclusively tied to maternity or their role as a wife, daughter, or mother and another extreme where the women were given the same importance as a man in all respects, including in the domains of leadership and decision-making. And in between the extremes, there was a whole range of subtle or overt norms and practices that affected women in ways that I felt were only rarely overtly or publicly expressed. For this episode, I spoke with Mauritian women who shared their stories with me and talked to Dr. Roshni Muniram, an honorary professor at the University of Nottingham and who is also from Mauritius. I asked them about gender and women's issues in the Mauritian context 
and how they would relate it to the broader global one. A little bit of background information on Mauritius. Mauritius is a tiny island in the Indian Ocean off the coast of Africa. The World Bank categorizes Mauritius as a high-income country. About 70% of the population is of Indian descent and 25% is of mainland African descent. This makes Mauritius one of the few African countries where the majority of the population do not originate from mainland Africa. Instead, the majority comes from India, a direct result of the British colonization of the island in the 19th century. Mauritius as a country consequently has a unique melting pot and mixture of cultures, traditions and religions originating primarily from both India and mainland Africa, which have been carried over through generations. However, Mauritius is also home to cultural gender norms, practices, prejudices, and beliefs that have harmed women for a very long time, despite the country's progressive laws regarding women. The Mauritian constitution prohibits discriminations based on sex and its gender equality laws are aligned with the African Commission on Human and People's Rights, that is ACHPR. The Mauritian government even has a dedicated ministry to ensure gender equality, called the Ministry of Gender Equality and Family Welfare. Mauritius has laws, bills, and even a dedicated ministry to ensure fairness. And yet, discrimination and injustices persist against women. This is Apna, a Mauritian woman who was born and grew up in the UK and who has been living and working in Mauritius for the past eight years. A lot of jobs, they're advertised, but they already have people in mind for them. So if you haven't grown up here and you don't have connections, you have difficulties finding work. I had one situation where a family member of mine offered me a job and the person in the job before me was male and was earning a certain amount and was much younger than me with less experience. But when I was offered the job, I was offered less money for basically I would have been doing more work than what he did. But um, I was let go because I wanted to do the job properly. The problem that you find when you're on your own is that then you don't have the sort of option of leaving a job if you're unhappy, if you don't have any familial support or partner support. I've found myself thinking, well, maybe I'd like to do something else, something more worthwhile, but um, I don't have that option because there's no, I don't have anything to fall back on. So regardless of whether, if it, I like my job, but even if, I didn't, I wouldn't have the option to leave unless I was let go. And that's another issue as well. The fear of losing your job and having nothing to fall back on. And, um, you know, sometimes I think there's government assistance for a certain amount of time if you lose your job. And, um, you know, certain people get assistance for certain reasons, but then it doesn't seem to be enough of a safety net sometimes. So 
exactly what the letter of the law is, but you see a lot of job adverts that say men only, women only, and then there's age discrimination as well. All government jobs that are advertised, they say you can't be 40 when you apply for the job. And the fact that you can advertise for a job to say either men or women or whatever age, I don't seem, doesn't seem that the law is doing what it should be, which is to protect people and give people equal opportunities. I wasn't aware of how Mauritians really saw women on a sort of global scale. If, I've sort of felt like a lot of men see women as objects and you don't get taken seriously enough. And a lot of people don't really want to know your opinions or, you know, what you think about or anything. It's just everything is sort of, I don't know whether it's to do with the traditional culture, but I find it quite hypocritical as well. I also spoke with Mohsina, a 19-year-old undergraduate studying in Europe. She talked about how the discrimination that she faced within her family affected her mental health and consequently her actions and choices growing up. As you grow up, you start to really kind of rub on you that, that uh, the other person having a little bit more uh, things are being in the favour more than you. I think I started noticing this because I have my cousin. We are the same age, uh, but he has always been the, the favorite person to everybody in the family, to be honest. I always thought because he was a boy, and uh, to, be, to be honest, my grandparents always wanted a boy in the family, but he was the only one, and then I was born afterwards, a, a girl, and I always thought that it was probably that. Because every time it was just him, it was just him, it was really never about me. And I don't know if this is where a lot of my insecurities started, but I would say that this is where I start to feel really kind of very uh, ignored. When I lose people, I always thought that maybe I wasn't good enough and that I don't deserve anybody else. Now, there's all those factors, when they come together, it really is not a great combination, believe me. It just kind of, it just messes with your mind a lot. These experiences are not just limited to Apna and Mohsina. I also spoke with Sabrina. She grew up in Mauritius, but for the past 10 years has been studying and working in Paris. Our movements as women were restricted in the public space. Like, um, I know a lot of my friends, we used to talk about that, like if friends that had brothers, their brothers could go out, you know, and play football and soccer in the streets. And we were sort of like, we could only go to school, go to private lessons after school and go straight home. Like there was nothing, our whole world was like, you know, but set by this rigid, rigid academia, uh, academic limits. And there was nothing else around it. Like it was, I mean, I think I had a relatively good childhood in Mauritius um, and a relatively worse adolescence because they, you know, there's this news that's on, I feel on Mauritian women, like we need to perform, that we need to be really good academically, but we're not given the tools to 
become fully fledged women. Like, for example, um, when I came to France for my studies, I was really, I felt very intimidated by my peers because I felt that they were fully fledged individuals. You know, they, they were really good at school, but they also were like, they did sports, they did music, they did dance, they did so many things. And in Mauritius, like, I feel like especially for women, we don't let us have this sort of creative outlet. Like it's only work, 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 and that's it. And um, it's it's very frustrating when I think about it now because I feel like I could have become a more wholesome individual and adult if I had that um, liberty to express myself when I was a when I was a teenager. And I resent I resent my my parents a lot. I resent society a lot because of that. Even you know I I'm also debating about going back home, but I'm just I don't want to be faced with the comments I know I'll get. You know even in if I want to go into politics, even if I want to, you know, create um, an, an NGO or work for, you know, social justice projects, I know that it's not going to be well received. Like, I know. And the fact that I'm a woman is, and also not the right type of woman, I'm not from the right caste, I'm not from the, you know, right skin color, all of these things are going to play. But the fact that I'm a woman is going to play even more. Because I don't know if you like you probably read still read like Mauritian newspapers and whenever there's an an article about a woman it could be a positive or a negative article if you look at the comments if you look at the reaction to it it's it's super violent like they will you know they won't take let's say if it's an article about a positive article about a woman doing a business or having something that's you know successful they will immediately like they will either you know denigrate her um, they will either say oh she's really hard or she's really pretty or they like, oh she's really ugly they won't like judge the content of what she's doing or they're going to um yeah they're going to have like these really denigrating comments and on the other hand if they're like articles which happen far too often in Mauritius of women who were beaten up by their spouse or raped or those kind of things the first comments you see are people saying oh but what was she doing with that guy oh why was she out oh why was she doing that like she probably was looking for it and people actually believe it they're like oh no if you don't and then it just sort of justifies their backward way of thinking which is oh if a girl doesn't go out in the street then she won't be raped oh if a girl doesn't do that then she's she'll be protected like a girl needs to stay within the four walls of a house to be able to survive and to live and to be valued you know which i find to be completely oh it it really makes me angry these are the experiences of apna sabrina and mohsina who volunteered to share their stories for this podcast but their stories would not sound strange or unusual for anyone else in Mauritius, myself included. These experiences for women are often very normalized. But the question that I still had to ask myself is why? Why are these struggles and this discrimination against women still widely present today in 2020? What are the factors that are still standing as barriers to women's emancipation and the need for you, for equality as a human right? Why are we not there yet? To get to the answer to these questions, I spoke with Dr. Rushni Munira. 
Dr. Muniram is an exceptional Mauritian woman who has a very long career as an academic and in gender consultancy, both in Mauritius and internationally. After an academic career at Birmingham City University and the University of Nottingham, Ningbo, China, where she co-founded and directed the Department of English Studies, she has provided consultancy in equality, diversity and inclusion, that is EDI, and change management to global companies such as Accenture and HSBC, and NGOs including Trade Plus Impact. She is today an honorary associate professor of social linguistics at the University of Nottingham. She was recently commissioned to create a roadmap to enable the University of Nottingham to influence government policy in ADI. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Muniram. So why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you are doing in this very unique period of time where we are not only living through a global pandemic but also a global uprise in calls for actions against systemic racism. Of course. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for this invitation. I'm delighted to be speaking to you. Um, uh, yes, strange times indeed, and also a, a time of great opportunity because precisely something that you're very interested in, which is voices. Voices are coming up and making themselves heard in really quite powerful ways. So I'm in the UK at the moment, and I've just finished for the University of Nottingham a, a roadmap report on equality, diversity and inclusion. And as soon as I finished that report, um, we started to see the anti-racist protests come up. Um, and obviously all of these things are, are really quite deeply, racism and sexism are, are deeply entrenched into our systems. And it's come a point where I think the pandemic just pushed us over a little bit and um, it provoked that um, emergence of voices which have been wanting to be heard for a long time and, and suddenly um, the moment is right uh, for them to be telling their truths. Indeed, yes. Uh, the recent tragic events of police brutality have revived and started many discussions across races of what it means to be a black person in countries post-colonialism. It is a very important discussion to be had as well because we can only bring about a strong positive change once we start taking conscious of and understand the struggles and injustices that our people are facing. On the gender aspect, what would you say being a woman in Mauritius means? You mentioned in a previous TED talk on feminism the fact that you left Mauritius with the intention of never returning back because you didn't like being a girl in Mauritius. And a lot of girls who leave Mauritius for whatever reason sometimes feel the same way. Why is that? What did it mean to you to be a woman in Mauritius back then and what does it mean to you now? It's fascinating indeed. Um, most of the, the young people who leave Mauritius and do not come back are predominantly women. Women do not want to come back to Mauritius because, um, and it's, it's, it's my personal story, it's the story of, of many of us because um, so I'll, I'll speak in my, my own voice. What was very frustrating for me in Mauritius growing up in the 70s, the 80s, was a sense, a really deep sense of injustice and a deep sense of sadness 
in seeing people around me, women, older women around me, who's the women of my mother's generation in particular, um, seeing how much potential there was there, but to what extent that potential was being crushed by systems, by families, by culture, by religion, um, by the way we operate in general. And I was aware that you, that, that is not how, that you could live your life differently. Um, and so, Yes, there was a, a great sense of anger, but, but really sadness as well. It was also quite um, difficult, especially when you're doing your A-levels and you come across the big ideas and you're engaged in the big discussions about what's happening in the world and feminism, etc. And then I couldn't reconcile these ideas with a way, a satisfactory way of being a girl or a young woman in Mauritius. And I couldn't place these two things together beautiful TED talk on feminism where you advocated for a wave of feminism centered on bridge building rather than bra burning. Um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit more about what feminism and gender equality means to you and why you have been so passionately involved in this domain for, for so many years despite any possible backlashes that you might have got from challenging very deep-rooted beliefs and attitudes that, as you said, like towards women in Mauritius. Yeah, so um, if you look at the things that we need to continue to thrive uh, as a species, as human beings, we need resources. And as we know, the resources around us are limited um, and are dwindling as we speak. Um, but one thing that is limitless is our human potential. And from the simple fact of having repressed the sexuality, the creativity, the power, the intelligence of 50% of the global population means we have suppressed so much of our potential as a, as a species. So, so I look at it very much from the point of view of the evolution of human beings. And I think we've come to a point where we can recreate so many things if we redress that balance and we create those bridges. And it's not about, of course, there is space to be angry and, and, and that we need to be able to vent our anger and to express it. Um, but in ways that allow us to meet men halfway so we can create something together. I think it is not for me, um, it is very much about that. It is about bridge building um, and then acknowledgement of what makes us truly human as men and as women. Um, because I think if we get that script right, if we rewrite the script from a patriarchal one, to a new story that creates space for the potential of women, then we will rewrite the future. Um, so it's, 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 it's abstract, but it is for me, the single most important nexus of power that is within our reach as we rewrite uh, our evolution as a species. Those must have been very difficult times. I'm a little bit curious on why we have these kinds of situation in Mauritius. You talked before about a deep-seated fear and distrust in women that you observed as a gender consultant in East African countries towards women, which paves the way for gaslighting and other gender issues. You talked about those in one of your previous articles. Uh, what makes East African countries, and Mauritius in particular, similar or different in that regards compared to other countries, for example, uh, Western countries? 
Yes, it, that is um, that deep-seated um, mistress and, and fear of women um, comes a long way. It's, it, it, it comes from um, the, the fear of women's sexuality because that is where a lot of our power uh, resides, obviously in our intelligence, etc. Of, of course, but um, it does go back to that because if you look at the history of, our, of different civilizations, there is often a tipping point where at, at one point in Asian civilizations you see women's sexuality in the sense of being able to create life as something that, to be really celebrated. And then at a certain point there's that tipped over and it becomes something that men start to fear because it's not something they can do. And um, there's a whole sort of um, there are new di power dynamics that are born and there's a, a need then to repress that sexuality because it becomes something that is associated with madness and um, hence the term hysteria because a woman's uterus is meant to move around in her body and if it goes to her head she becomes hysteric and she becomes mad. So a lot of it of this fear is to do with power. It's um, and the repression starts with that. And that is why a lot of the repression about women is a repression that is written on their bodies. Mm. Um, so, yes, there are interesting parallels across, in, interesting things in common between Mauritius and uh, several African countries. Um, I'll give you another example. FGM, for, for example, in, in East Africa, female um, genitalia mutilation is exactly that an example that epitomizes that fear of female sexuality so men have to find a way of binding women sexually so that um to control their their, their sexuality in general and it's a fear it's an incredible fear of that um now in terms of the parallels i mean there are this is not a fear that is um exclusive to Mauritius or exclusive to East Africa. And now that I'm here, back here in the UK, and I've been working on this report on equality, diversity and inclusion, and just generally being engaged in the diversity um, uh, conversations in the UK, there is a lot going on here that is quite similar. There is a, there's a, a lot of sexism and systemic sexism in the UK and, and a lot of fear of, of, of women. Um, so it is not something, of course, we have it in a very extreme form in FGM in East Africa, but some of that underlying fear and that desire to control women is, is very much present in the UK too. Indeed, systemic sexism is not only limited to Mauritius and very much there everywhere around the world. So what would you say are the factors that have contributed to gender inequality specifically in Mauritius, and how are our current structures still acting as a barrier to achieving inequality or equality? Are there loopholes in our current laws and structure, like, for example, like our education system, and etc., on the gender equality end, or is it just the culture that is holding us back? Well, well it's culture. culture. It is, yeah, cultural norms were seen to be what was uh, was not, not seen to be, that was the finding. The finding was that the biggest hurdle in the way of women and in the way of achieving gender parity in Mauritius is cultural. And so you have adverse norms. And as you know, culture is an intangible. 
you cannot just tweak something in a law or, or bring in a new law to change culture. It's just, it's this invisible monster. It is everywhere and it's, it's systemic, it's in our families, it's in religion, it's in uh, the very few, well, the three min women who are ministers in cabinet, um, three out of 24. It, it pervades absolutely everything. It's the books that we read, it's the things our teachers tell us, it's, it's what our religious leaders are telling us. Um, and so it's, yeah, the adverse norms, and it's, my, my report goes into great detail about this, what are the, the adverse norms um, against women? And the other one was the, the absence of positive role models, because you know, it's, it's a vicious circle. Um, yeah, so that was the first one was the adverse norms. And the second one, again, that's still tied up with culture is the, um, the fact that um, unpaid work and unpaid care is not fairly recognized uh, and fairly distributed, as we know, um, in Mauritius and elsewhere as well. Um, so, so of course, more women go out to work now, but they are still shouldering 70-80% of the unpaid invisible work that takes place at home. So that's another really big barrier to women. But something that really kind of hurt me um, quite deeply was the, 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 one of the findings was that women had a very low level of self-confidence and therefore practice a lot of self-sabotage in relation to refusing, refusing promotions at work or uh, going for jobs that are, you know, three levels down from where they should be just because they don't have the confidence or they don't feel they can do this job as well as look after their family. So there's an enormous amount of creative potential, intelligence, leadership capacity, um, innovation that is lost in Mauritius because of culture um, and then we, and then we can look at you know other things which are perhaps easier to to look into and address and redress so what are the government policy frameworks what are the changes that we need to see in business culture and practices to to encourage more women to take their place um in boardrooms in the work in the workplace um but really it is it is culture and that's a monster of a thing to change there is a lot of um um silencing that goes on as you know um in Mauritius in relation to a lot of the violence that is done to women whether it's violence in terms of not allowing them the freedom and the basic human rights of uh, freedom of movement um and a, a lot of that is covered up in silence um by within families there is often a, a tacit understanding um about those things and that is why changing the law is really important because then it, it makes it visible and it makes it real and tangible and people are less likely then to hide behind silence after discussing everything do you see any hope regarding the fulfillment of gender equality in mauritius yeah um yes i i have a lot of hope and I think the, we live in very interesting times. So if you look at world history until very recently, um, history goes into cycles of 550 years. So every 550 years, a cycle closes and a new one opens. And we are now at a moment where a lot of the old um, 
systems are, are not working anymore and that's why we're seeing all the protests taking place etc so it's a really exciting time to be reviewing the things that have taken us this this far thus far but the things that will not take us into a productive fulfilling sustainable future so it's time to be reviewing a number of different things and um one interesting thing i think for women in in mauritius is the is now is to be able to look onto role models who are not necessarily based in the West, but role models in, in Africa, role models in India. What are women doing there? I mean, because strong women's movement. So that's one thing Mauritius doesn't have. It doesn't have one strong women's, women's movement. Um, one strong um, at, at a national level that has a strong voice, that has the ability to bring um, 10, 20, many voices together um, to, to act as a lobby um in relation to government and in relation to the private sector and in relation to workplace practices we don't don't have that but we you do in 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 india and you do in east africa i mean i'm amazed about the ability of some of the women i work with in east africa their ability to um reinvent themselves and um to to work in a very not an individualistic way but to work in um very collectively to work with the community so that it's not just one woman's action but it's a woman uh, it's how a woman's action has a positive impact on her whole community and there's there's, there's a lot of um collectiveness in the way they kind of pushing forward the the gender equality agenda um so we have other role models we have lots of role models to be looking um to who we may have more in common culturally in, in Africa, in, in Asia, and not necessarily associate ourselves with a feminism that is from the West. I mean, we can create our own models of what feminism uh, would mean for Mauritius. Would, what would it look like? It kind of still remains to be defined. And, and what, I'm, what I mean is it doesn't have to be defined in relation to how the West has defined it anymore. Um, so, Yes, I think it's um, there. There is a lot to look forward to. Um, if you look also, I mean, one thing that gives me um, hope is, and that is one thing that we must really change in Mauritius, is the participation of women in politics. Um, we have an incredibly educated female population in Mauritius. So in Africa, we have the most highly populated, uh, high, highly educated female population. Um, there are more women in Mauritius who are in tertiary education. I don't know if you, you knew that. More women in tertiary education than men. Mm. In, so a huge, huge amount of uh, intellectual capital. But, but then we only have four out of six, four out of 10 women who, who work. Um, so there's a huge loss of financial capital, intellectual capital. In Mauritius, and um, and of course we have very very few women politicians. Just three out of twenty four of our uh, ministers are women, and that was the same in in the last government as well. Um, so for things to change, I mean, if you look at what Kagame has done in Rwanda, for example, um, he's totally um, reshuffled his his um, his cabinet, and there are more women, as many if not more women um, MPs than there are men. Um, 
and that is that, that's i go back to that point of you know there are revolutionary things happening around us and just next door on our own continent um that should be inspiring us to to creating space for women to uh, make their voices heard in in parliament um so uh, that is something that would give me a lot of hope for mauritius if we get to the point where there are more women who who want to be and are allowed to be in politics taking those decisions for us and creating a, a better future talking about women in politics you are also one of the women who engaged in politics at some point with your own political movement called ensemble capable which is really extraordinary to me because there are very few people who have the courage to face and challenge the current government systems in place and create a movement of their own and as you said we have those movements in india and east africa but we don't really have those in mauritius and also and i don't know if you still are a mentor to the grooming young mauritian leaders program in mauritius which is probably on a similar vein to creating a movement for women so i was wondering what were the barriers for you when you were engaging in politics and creating your own movement and what kind of cultural norms did you find very hard to tackle yeah um well first of all it's it's impossible to go into politics unless um you join one of the major parties and i didn't want to join any of the major political parties because my values are not aligned with their values and so i, I wanted to be part of a political um party that had values that i in which i recognized my own and so therefore a few other people and i got together and created this uh, founded this new political party and we went into into the elections in 2014 um what did i learn from it uh, it was an incredible incredible experience and i am just so grateful for it because um it allowed me to see many aspects of mauritius which i would never have seen as an academic because as an academic you have tools to research and analyze a country from a distance and from a great great intellectual distance but once you are on the ground and you move into the fever of a, of an electoral campaign and the country transforms because the people of mauritius become the electorate of mauritius and they are not the same entity at all and to see that transformation and to see um what makes people tick at an election and what makes people vote the way they do was really quite um a big learning um in relation to being a woman in politics so so going against the grain like that is already very difficult now if you're trying to do this as a woman it's it's 10 times more difficult um because your voice is is less credible um by the fact that you stand alone from the big parties and by the fact that you are a woman as well um but the biggest thing for me was to realize that if i wanted to stay in politics i would have to give up on all the the things that i actually do really believe in so the uh you would not have to pay to play the ethnic uh, the ethnicity card you'd have to play the caste card you had to play um um identity games that i have nothing um that i don't believe in um that are totally counter 
to, to what I believe in, in terms of Republican values in Mauritius. So it was just, um, I think, understanding that, understanding that um, people like your ideas, people might have liked some of my ideas when I was writing in the press, but people don't want things to change. Um, so it's, there's a sense of liking some of my ideas theoretically, because they sound right, those ideas are ethical and they sound right, but that people do not want that transformation to impact on their lives because everything has to change then. Um, so, so yeah, so my biggest take then is that I've had to revise my theory of change and I don't see change in Mauritius happening um, through politicians in given the current political culture that we have. This might change in the future, but at the moment, the political culture doesn't allow change to come in and the kind of change I would have liked to see. Therefore, to, to exercise my own sense of agency, I've found that I can have more impact through my advocacy work and through my professional work as a consultant in equality, diversity, and inclusion. And so that is where I have focused my attention. Um, and so I, I carry on working as a consultant um, in Mauritius with, and elsewhere with Global 500 companies, um, but also with universities and also with governments um, in trying to influence policy and best practices uh, from that angle. Um, but to, to go in and to expect that um, you can change things top down is, uh, was rather naive of me. Um, and uh, I have understood a number of different things and therefore reconfigured my pathway in order to have the kind of impact that I still want to have. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us, Dr. Muniram. I definitely learned a lot from you today and I'm sure our listeners will learn a lot from listening to you. So to close this discussion, if there was one advice that you could give to women struggling under gender discrimination and injustice, what would it be? Yeah, it's to speak out because, you know, women's movements have started because women have spoken to other women and because women have chosen to speak out. So we really have to remember that silence becomes something that we have internalized and we have imposed on ourselves. And the, the most powerful thing we can do is to speak out. It doesn't mean you have to go to a radio and speak out, but it means you can reach out to organizations, you can reach out to mentors, you can reach out to Gender Links, for example, is an organization that does a lot of really good work in Mauritius. You, you can reach out to these people. They have their numbers advertised and, um, and seek help. We cannot, I think we, we are navigating very interesting, a very interesting time in history in the sense that we want to claim um, more space for ourselves. And these spaces, we haven't occupied them before. And therefore, there is no direct route to take you there. There is no clear pathway to take you there. Um, and it's okay to say that we, we don't, I don't individually have the answers to everything, but I can reach out to an expert, I can reach out to a friend, I can reach out to a mentor who might be able to put me in the right direction. But speaking out is, is really, really key. I think this is where it all begins. Thank you so much to Nuza for this fantastic episode as well as a big thank you to Apna, Mushina, Sabrina, and of course, Dr. Rosni Munaram. 
To learn more about women's rights or women in Mauritius, be sure to check out the resources in our show's show notes. To keep human rights close to your home, subscribe to The Rights Pod wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Rights Pod. The views reflected in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Stanford Center for Human Rights.